is unit seven in our module, People in Business. Unit seven is about decision-making and leadership. So what we're gonna look at today are some of the characteristics of decisions and how we can understand decision-making in organizations. So that will have to do with where decisions take place in organizations, how we can characterize different kinds of decisions in the organization, identifying the cause of failures in decision-making, looking at the idea around ethical decision-making, and understanding some of the systematic processes of making good decisions and looking at some different models of decision-making. We'll also emphasize the critical role of diversity in decision-making and evaluate some of the different approaches, models, theories of leadership and leadership in its intricate uh, relationship with decision-making and look at some ideas about moral issues in leadership. So we'll start by looking at organizational decision-making and identifying what we mean by that and what is going on with that. So organizational decision-making takes place when a person in authority identifies an important issue and carries out a process to make a choice that then produces an outcome with some kind of consequences. So we can understand decision-making as a kind of a problem-solving situation and it can be understood as a set of activities designed to analyze the situation systematically and then generate, implement, and evaluate the solutions that we come up with for those decisions. So decision-making can occur at every step in a problem-solving process. And it unfolds in a sequence of actions that can include intelligence gathering, direction setting, the generation of alternative solutions, the selection of a solution, and then the implementation of that solution. So we can understand decision-making in organizations as a mechanism of making choices in that problem-solving process. So, some things to be aware of for managers is that before they try to attempt some kind of a quick fix, they should try to understand what the basic problem is that they are looking at when it comes to this decision-making process. So this is important because sometimes the underlying causes of problems are not always obvious. And managers may often just treat the symptoms of a problem rather, rather than trying to identify and treat the root cause of the problem. So in a decision-making process, this whole phenomenon of making choices has to do with a gap existing between what is happening now and what we would like to see occur. And then we need to understand which alternatives exist in the situation that we're experiencing. So variations of this decision gap might look like this. Something is wrong and needs to be corrected. Something is threatening and needs to be prevented. Something is inviting and needs to be accepted. Or something is missing and needs to be provided. So those are some of the initial things we can understand about organizational decision-making. Now we'll move on to some types and levels of decision-making. So a bit of vocabulary to help us characterize decision-making in organizations. On the one hand, we can understand decision-making in terms of programmed decisions versus non-programmed decisions. And we can also understand decisions in terms of their risk and their uncertainty. By characterizing decisions in this way, we get a bit of insight into where these decision-making processes will normally be taking place in an organization. So let's start with looking at some types of decisions. A program decision is generally the type of decision that can be characterized as being repetitive or routine. So these are the types of decisions that people would be making in the organization on a regular basis and there may be some kind of a procedure already put in place or some kind of a process or a decision rule, maybe even an algorithm 
In a call center, for example, you might have scripts that you would go through, and those can be understood as an established way of approaching these kinds of decisions, an established way that is easily specified. Some examples of this might also be pricing policies or the delegation of authority procedures. On the other hand, we have non-program decisions. These decisions tend to be more complex, and they're the type of decisions that occur less frequently and are often poorly structured. For non-program decisions, there will be no apparent decision-making rule, and managers will be required to engage in a kind of a difficult and complex problem-solving process to approach these non-program decisions. In addition to that, we look at the level of risk involved and the level of uncertainty involved in decisions. So high-risk decisions are the type of decisions that are usually going to be looked at at the top level of organizations, so in the executive management, top management levels. These are often understood to be strategic or high-risk decisions and carry quite a lot of uncertainty with them. They may involve a lot of intelligence gathering, direction setting, and a lot of uh, time in uncovering alternatives and assessing those alternatives in order to choose a good plan of action, as these decisions may also have long-reaching, long-term implications. Implementing the plan will involve high levels of uncertainty and even the possibility of conflict. Oftentimes, it can be external events that will shape the choices made in non-programmed and high-risk decisions. If we look at our diagram here, we can see that underneath top management, we have the level of mid middle management. And at this level of the organization, you'll find both non-programmed and programmed decision-making is taking place. So there will be a certain amount of risk involved, but also a certain level of uh, lower levels of ambiguity or lower levels of uncertainty. As we move down to the low risk decisions and decisions that have low uncertainty, low levels of uncertainty, these would involve um, less, less involvement of top management, these are the types of decisions that can be made in lower levels of the organization. They would tend to be more like programmed decisions. And these types of decisions will permit a certain degree of delegation. One thing to be aware of when talking about decisions is the difference between good decision-making processes and poor decision-making processes, which can then uh, end up in poor decision making. So a good decision will, in general, in terms of its effectiveness, be one that is in high quality, that is timely, understandable and acceptable to those who support the decision and whose support is needed for its implementation. When you're going through a decision-making process, it's a good idea to try to assess the problem at hand you can identify the problem and its elements, you might ask yourself some questions as, is this an easy problem to deal with? Um, might the problem resolve itself? Do I really need to get involved? Is it my decision to make? Is this a solvable problem within the context of the organization or does this need to be handled somewhere else? You might also look at some appropriate models for decision making. You also need, as a manager, to understand who should be involved in the decision-making process and make good choices as to who should provide their input and who doesn't necessarily need to be involved. You might take into account how quickly the decision needs to be made and what sorts of trade-offs may need to be made uh, in terms of quality of decision-making if that decision needs to be made very quickly. If quality of decision-making is important, then you would need to be seeking a decision that is accurate and likely to be accepted by others.
depending on the time you need and the quality you need, you might want to engage various individuals and groups in the decision-making process and have more people contributing ideas. This would be the case for complex decisions. You can divide up complex tasks in that situation and conduct a more thorough search for alternatives. But some things can hinder decision-making. So bottlenecks can occur. For example, ambiguity in decision-making can cause bottlenecks and the decision-making process can then stall. For example, in a highly bureaucratic organization that has central decision-making processes, you might find that bottlenecks would occur uh, quite frequently. And these internal functional bottlenecks are quite relevant to managers. Networks, collaborations, and contracting exemplify the kind of issues related to accountability in decision-making. So who's going to be held accountable for the decision might also cause certain kinds of bottlenecks in the decision-making process. In fact, some scholars have found that over half of all decisions that are made in organizations can fail. And even really bad decisions, like a decision debacle, are the type that goes so wrong that they even get reported in the media, which can then escalate into an organizational crisis situation. Another reason why decisions might go bad is because managers would be experiencing a type of cognitive bias or a blind spot in their decision-making abilities. And what that means is when they face new situations, they may employ the same strategies and tactics that have proved successful in the past and do so without questioning whether these strategies are actually appropriate for these current and new circumstances. So a few more reasons why decisions might fail can be due to faulty decision-making practices. It may also be due to premature commitments, committing too quickly to a quickly made decision. Decisions can fail because you may have a misallocation of resources, such as the time, the money spent on analysis, uh, to justify the wrong problem or maybe getting the wrong people involved. Some reasons why decisions might fail is also failing to understand the, the context and the influence that the context has on the decision-making processes. And by trying to follow best practices, regardless of whether or not best practices are appropriate for that context, so the prospects of success in decision-making will improve when managers work to uncover hidden concerns and when they take steps to manage the social and political forces involved in that process and surrounding those circumstances. Identifying results, encouraging innovation, and making sure that they keep their eye on their estimation of the risk involved in the decision. So that was our first part in looking at decision-making and leadership, and now we'll move on to some rational decision-making models. Moving on to the second part of our unit on decision-making and leadership, we're now looking at a couple of models of decision-making, and the first one we look at is called the rational model. So the rational model involves some phases and steps in the decision-making process. These are depicted here in the chart. The model 
is useful for explaining and predicting behavior in terms of decision-making. This rational decision-making model is the one that is the most familiar to us. We tend to rely on the rational model to make sense out of decisions. A rational, goal-directed approach was the most effective way to search for solutions to problems. Setting goals clears ambiguity and increases the decision-maker's chance of being successful in their decision-making. The modern rational choice model introduces the element of self-interest, which seeks to explain the inconsistencies between the rational goal of the organization and the individual interests of the actor. The notion of self-interest acknowledges that rationality is just one of the many potential influences of the decision-making process. So when we think of rational decision-making, it means we're engaging in rational, logical, cognitive, uh, intentional decision-making processes and a step-by-step -step kind of a process model. The phases that we can outline in the rational model are the pre-analysis phase, the analytic phase, the design phase, the choice phase, and the implementation phase. In the pre-analysis phase, this is where the situations are defined. So we're coming to understand the situation and define the problem. In the analytical phase, the situations that affect the goal are perceived and the information about them is gathered. In the design phase, our options are crystallized to deal with the situation. So this may involve, uh, as well, diagnosing the problems and generating alternatives. In the choice phase, the alternatives are evaluated and the optimal choice, according to the information and the people involved, uh, the optimal choice is selected. And in the implementation phase, we implement that specific alternative that has been chosen to meet the specific situation. So let's have a further look at the rational model and some of its characteristics. The classical economic man argument suggests that people consider all available alternatives to them and make choices that maximize the values that they will receive from that decision. Herbert Simon, in his classic administrative behavior piece, argued that real people cannot quite handle all of the information that is available and they do not have the decision-making prowess required to fit the assumptions of the economic man. Simon suggests that humans have cognitive limits. So what we're saying here is that even though people attempt to engage in a rational decision-making model, and they may think they're making rational decisions, they may not actually possess the cognitive ability to do this. So what does that tell us about uh, decision-making and this rational decision-making model uh, even more? Let's have a look at what else we know about this. decision-making model, phases for decision-making are performed deliberately and consciously, and they rely on the rationality of the decision-maker's thoughts and behaviors. It is a classical and dominant orientation to decision-making, and it assumes that human purposeness, both in individual behavior and in the broader scope of issues, 
such as those found in organizations. It assumes that individuals and groups behave rationally in decision-making and when taking other actions. To behave rationally generally is understood to mean that people try to maximize the value they receive in any situation. That is, they make value-maximizing choices. There are actually several variations of the theme of rationality. For example, as mentioned before, the classic economic man argument, in which it assumes that people uh, will take into consideration all kinds of alternatives and then make the decision that best suits their needs and their interests and will have the best maximum outcome for what they are looking to achieve. So because Simon was suggesting that we have cognitive limits as humans and we cannot always behave rationally, and we cannot deal with all the possible aspects of a problem, we may not have the decision-making ability to look at the decisions and make quality decisions, we choose then, therefore, to tackle meaningful subsets of the information that's available to us and make decisions that might not maximize value, but are at least enough to satisfactory quality, so we satisfice, so to speak. In seeking irrational decisions, you're limited in your capacity to achieve such a decision in all cases. So included in the rational model are other assumptions that decisions are orderly, not disorderly, that they are intentional, not unintentional, and that they are purposive and not random, that they're deliberate and not chaotic, consistent and not inconsistent, and so on. In a competitive world, the decision-making model characterized by rational calculation of a cost-benefit situation and the various alternatives included. Some criticisms of the rational decision-making model include that values and feelings also play an important part in decision-making. Habits, moral feelings, and values that have nothing to do with rationality may actually be guiding our behavior and our decision-making. Emotions and their regulation play a central role in decision-making. And some have criticized the rational approach for its disregard for a holistic picture of human nature, which would also include culture. An example of this comes from Janice and Mann from 1977. Assuming consistency, intentionality, purposefulness, and rationality on the part of individuals invariably leads to misunderstanding and possibly to false assumptions. So those are some thoughts about the rational decision-making model, how it is characterized, and what some of the underlying assumptions are, as well as what some of the criticisms are. Next, we'll move on to the organizational process model. In the organizational process model, this explains the logic of the action. It includes the possibility of multiple agents in the decision-making process. And under this model, decision-makers are constrained by standard operating procedures that tend to make decision outcomes somewhat more predictable. So as you may have already noticed, this will have to do with program decisions. So some characteristics of the organizational process model are that an organization as the pattern of communication and relationship in a group that provides each member with information and assumptions, goals and attitudes that enter into his or her decisions. Individual organizational members develop standard ways of reacting to situations they confront. Organizations' influence on decision-making is exercised by dividing tasks among its members, establishing standard practices, transmitting objectives through the organization, providing channels of communication that run in all directions, training and indoctrinating its members with the knowledge, skills, and values of the organization. Decisions are dependent on small incremental choices made in response to short-term conditions. Decision-making is controlled infinitely more by events and circumstances than by the will of those in policy-making positions. The analysis of alternatives for action and the choice of values and goals that inform the decision become so intertwined that they are indistinguishable. 
Some further characteristics of organizations under this organizational process model include the fact that individuals must be organized in a structured way in order to achieve an objective. Organizations create capabilities for performing tasks that otherwise would be impossible. Existing organizations and programs do constrain behavior. An organizational culture emerges that shapes the behavior of individuals within the organization and can impact organizational decision-making. Organizations also form a sort of technology in which groups of individuals work together in developing procedures to complete the designated tasks. Now, there are some criticisms of the organizational process model. Decision makers in this model are prevented from forecasting the future and acting on the basis of a predetermined vision. Decision makers are forced to make incremental changes based on standard operating procedures and organizations create their own kind of institutionalized rationality. So as you see, this organizational process model does also have its limitations. We can move on now to what is called the garbage can model. In the garbage can model, organizations are viewed as having a collection of choice opportunities, solutions looking for problems, and participants who are looking for work. Choice opportunities are occasions when organizations are expected to produce decisions. Participants are characterized in terms of the energy they have available for problem solving. Problems are characterized by how much energy will be required to make a choice. Solutions recognize the potential energy that is necessary to solve a problem. So decisions being made in the garbage can model are considered to be processes that are affected by the timing of problems, solutions, participants, and choice opportunities, all of which are assumed to be independent. The choice opportunity then is viewed as the garbage can in which the participants dump their problems, solutions, and energy. Once the garbage can is full, or once all of the alternatives associated with it have been exhausted, it is removed from the decision-making process. Some criticisms of this decision-making model are that managers may simply generate actions that will make them look good or protect them from looking bad. So image management is an issue here with the garbage can model. Judgmental bargaining and analytical approaches have been used to evaluate alternatives in the garbage can model. Judgment was evidenced by decision makers in applying their intuition to select among courses of action without explaining the reasoning or the rationale. Bargaining was said to occur when parties to the decision negotiated to reach an agreement. An analysis was used to produce factual evaluation. The last note I want to make on decision making before we move on to the next topic is about groupthink. This is a phenomenon that can occur in the decision making process. Some of the antecedent conditions to this phenomenon of groupthink are that you are involved in a group that has a lot of high levels of cohesion, that you have a directive leader involved, a complex situation, and that the group is insulated from uh, the external environment or their, through external influences, and there are a lack of procedures to consider alternatives to a decision. Groupthink is a decision-making process that is generally thought to lead to poor decision-making. It's a mode of thinking that occurs when people are deeply involved in a cohesive group and their desire for unanimity will offset their motivation to appraise alternative courses of action. The individual's mental efficiency, their reality testing and moral judgment can deteriorate as a result of pressures in the group. So groupthink is a mental effort among group members to maintain emotional equanimity by providing social support to each other. So some of the symptoms of groupthink are the illusion of invulnerability where those in the group feel like 
they've made so many decisions in the past, they can't go wrong. A belief in the morality of the group, so believing that they are so moral and so good at what they do that there's no reason to question their thinking. It's also collective rationalizations that can occur in these types of groups. Stereotyping of outgroups, the exclusion of outgroups, and the judgment of outgroups. Self-censorship is another characteristic or symptom of groupthink. The illusion of unanimity and the self-censorship may mean that people are afraid to speak up even if they disagree with the group. And there may be even direct pressure from that directive leader or from others in the group to go along with what they are saying. Uh, and self-appointed mind guards are another symptom of groupthink. So the consequences of groupthink are poor decision-making. Poor information gathering can occur in these situations. Selective information processing or cognitive bias or blind spots occur from this. Because then there is a development of few alternatives, you fail to consider alternatives, you fail to consider the risk, you fail to reevaluate your decision and the alternatives, and you fail to develop a contingency plan in case whatever you do decide does go wrong. So how can we prevent groupthink? Well, one way to look at this is to consider who should be involved in the decision-making. Authoritative decisions are those made by an individual alone or on behalf of the group. So a directive leader might be imposing certain kinds of alternative decisions in this groupthink process. Consultative decisions are decisions that an individual makes, but in, in this case, they are seeking input or consulting with members of the group. Now, in the process of groupthink, you might see this process going on, but in the end, uh, the decision of dominant members will be implemented. Group decisions are, are decisions where all group members of the group make ideally through some form of consensus. Now, groupthink is also an example of consensus, but it's an example of reaching consensus through a series of poor processes, poor antecedents, and poor symptoms. Now, the advantages of making group decisions are that involving a lot of people in a process can result in a better decision. More people will have the, had the opportunity to think through the pros and cons of the decision and the information you have and more people will be likely to support the decision in which they have been involved. Also having a diversity of members involved in the decision can improve the illumination of critical issues or assumptions. Now the disadvantages of group decisions may mean that you're also sacrificing efficiency because it takes more time to to make decisions as a group. The more people who are involved, the more time is going to be involved. And in group decision-making, the process is slower than if an individual were making that decision on their own. So these are some things to consider when making decisions and also when attempting to prevent groupthink. So some of the ways to prevent groupthink will require critical thinking on the part of the individuals involved in the groups, and the groups would need to avoid contamination of the process or goal displacement. Contamination of the process or goal displacement is encountered when the cohesion of the group overcomes the process for decision-making or the goal for the assignment. So in order to prevent groupthink, you need to be aware of these symptoms and of these antecedents and to ensure that critical thinking, critical evaluation is involved in the group decision-making process. So that concludes our discussion of decision-making, the decision-making models and group think. And next we're going to move on to leadership. to the concept of leadership in our unit seven. So there are a lot of things that can be said about leadership. 
people have been studying leadership for a very, very long time. And here we're coming to understand the idea of what people thought of leadership in the past. We'll look at some things about uh, historical development of the concept of leadership and research. So this slide is making the claim that leaders' roles in the past were thought of as being coming up with good ideas for the direction a group should take or deciding on a course of action or a goal that is to be accomplished by the group or leadership as exerting influence or control in moving the group in a direction. These days we have many different definitions of leadership and most leadership theory now will refer to leadership as a process or a relationship by which one or more people influence others to pursue some kind of commonly held objective or to pursue some kind of a common goal. So that's a very simple definition of leadership that we can think of. A process whereby a person or a group of people influence a group of people towards the achievement of some overarching goal or some common goal. Now, leadership, as I said before, has been studied throughout the ages, and in terms of academic research, we can say that uh, there's been a historical development moving from early approaches of the trait approach, often also called the great man approach, where researchers looked at who were leaders and then identified individual characteristics of those persons, which earlier. Hi. As you can imagine, in earlier times, if you looked at the people who were leaders and tried to suss out what their characteristics were, you'll find that most of them were men. And that's why we call it the great man theory, who were the great men who were leaders. Leadership research evolved through looking at uh, situational leadership and behavioral approaches and also contingency approaches. So each one of these theories and trends, let's say, in leadership focused on specific aspects. In the leadership situation, uh, situational leadership theories were looking at different aspects of the leadership process and situation. So it looked a little bit at who were the followers and who were the leaders, what was the task structure, what sorts of um, aspects of power did the leader have, and what was the maturity of the followers, for example. In the behavioral approach, it was focusing more on the behaviors, on what leaders do rather than who they are or how they are. In contingency approaches, it focuses on leader traits and behaviors are effective in different situations and then try to match the leader to the situation. Uh, one of the most well-known examples of the contingency approach is uh, Fiedler's contingency theory. So we can look at these all in a tiny bit more detail, starting with the trait approach. We're looking at a more contemporary author on the trait approach, Stockdill, um, who argued that leaders are characterized by these traits. So a strong drive, drive for responsibility, task completion, persistence in the pursuit of goals, creativity in problem solving, the exercise of initiative in social situations, self-confidence, a strong sense of personal identity, the willingness to accept the consequences of their decisions and actions, the capacity for absorbing stress, a willingness to tolerate frustration and delay, the ability to influence the behavior of others, and a capacity to organize groups to achieve a purpose at hand. So the trait approach, if we look at some of the things that Stockdale pointed out, addresses the question of what constitutes effective leadership based on personality characteristics or traits. And as I mentioned before, it has often been associated with looking at successful leaders and their lives and their careers and studying these to determine which qualities set those people apart from others. What is it then? What is the recipe for making a leader? 
However, when certain traits are associated with leadership, traits alone cannot predict who will actually become a leader. Someone may possess these traits, but nevertheless not take on that positional role, or let alone whether a person with certain traits would actually be an effective leader. And so we can move on to the behavioral approach, which focuses more on what leaders do rather than who they are. Now, we're skipping back to the 40s in which a series of research studies were conducted not only by the Ohio State University group, but also by a group in Michigan. So obviously these studies were done in the United States, which means they have a very highly American kind of perspective on what good leadership is meant to be or what leadership is. So this behavioral approach to leadership emerged out of these two major studies. It considers uh, the extent to which a leader is concerned for the welfare of those in the group, and that aspect or that dimension was called consideration. The idea of consideration is primarily focused on relationships. And they defined another dimension in the Ohio State studies called initiation of structure which describes the extent to which the leader initiates activity in the group, organizes the group, and defines the way in which work is to be done. So you can see that this is much more focused on the task aspect of working together as a group. Now the Michigan studies came up with two very similar dimensions that they, that they labeled relationship versus task. And so they came to characterize in the behavioral approach leadership according to these dimensions of focus on relationship or consideration and focus on initiation of structure or task. Now, I mentioned before the Fiedler contingency approach to leadership. The main bits about Fiedler's approach was that you would figure out what sort of situation needs to be led and find out what kind of leader you have. The Fiedler contingency approach operates off of the assumption that leaders have one style of leading and should be matched then to the correct situation. Most, most appropriate style then of the leader is the one that leads to high task performance outcome of two important factors, the preferred behavioral style of the leader and the contextual circumstances the group operates in. The contextual variables affecting the appropriateness of a particular style is considered to be the sum of the favorableness of the situation. So when this has impacts for leader-member relations, for task structure, and for the positional power that the leader has. So what can we say about the Fiedler's uh, contingency approach? Basically, it requires consideration of leadership characteristics, traits or behaviors, or a combination thereof, and the leadership situation. Some of the things to be considered in, in Fiedler's model, it assumes that task-oriented leaders will be most effective when they can assert the most influence and control. Another approach that suggests a leader needs to select behavior meeting the needs of subordinates and the degree of structure and clarity of the task is called the path-goal theory. The path-goal theory proposes that directive behavior will be most effective in situations where employees themselves are somewhat uh, dogmatic and where the demands of the task are ambiguous and where rules and procedures are unclear. So basically, directive leadership is needed when uh, the followers lack certain skills, knowledge, or where the situation is ambiguous and they require direction. Supportive leadership behavior, on the other hand, is most effective in situations where subordinates are engaged in work that is stressful, frustrating, or unsatisfying. So in the Fiedler approach, you would expect that a directive leader is best suited to a situation that requires direction and a supportive leader would be best suited for a situation that is stressful, frustrating, or unsatisfying. There are other can, uh, approaches to leadership that might be related to the Fiedler approach. Lead, leader member relations is one thing that is pointed out. There's also an entire theory called leader member exchange theory. 
This refers to the quality of the relationship between the leaders and the followers. In the Fiedler approach, one of the issues is the position power as well as the this would be addressing the referent power. If the relationship between the leaders and followers is good and they have confidence, liking and trust and respect for each other, then a favorable situation for the leader will make it easier for them to influence the subordinate behavior. The structure of the task is also a contingency factor that can influence the leadership situation. This refers to the nature of the group's tasks. So if the task is unambiguous and routine, then the leader would not require giving too much direction. The followers would not require very much direction. So there's less need for the leader to guide them, direct and supervise their work. As far as the leader's positional power goes, this refers to the formal organizational authority that the leader has. If position power is high and the leader has the authority to assign tasks to the subordinates directly and to reward and punishment for their performance, this will also have an impact on the contingency as to which leader should be suited to which situation. So the Fiedler's model was a huge advance on some of the previous theories that were primarily focused on traits and characteristics or on uh, behavioral style characteristics because it uh, effectively made a certain combination of these things. Um, however, there are also some criticisms of Fiedler's contingency approach. Studies testing its validity have achieved mixed evidence of accuracy and other variables could also influence the leadership's effectiveness rather than simply their style and their situation and the matching thereof. A key factor here is task performance, which neglects the equally important factor of follower satisfaction. Overall, Fiedler's approach uh, represented a significant contribution to leadership theory and recognizing that contextual circumstances have a strong impact on the appropriateness of leader behavior. So what we'll be looking at in the next set is some more contemporary approaches to leadership. Now we'll continue with our look at contemporary approaches to leadership. What are some of the newer characteristics of the way we understand leadership? Intelligence and self-understanding are some additional factors that we've been looking at in leadership theory. Self-confidence and self-esteem, high energy and determination to succeed, creativity, sociability, and integrity have all come into play when looking at leadership and trying to understand leadership from a newer perspective, a more contemporary perspective. Increasingly, in addition to describing these traits of leaders, we're now focusing on skills, competencies, and strategies associated with leadership. And there are many lists and lots of different traits that seem to stand out. Kuzas and Posner developed uh, a model of leadership in their book called The Leadership Challenge. And they concluded that more than anything else, people would like leaders who are credible, leaders who have integrity and who are credible. They said that leaders establish their credibility through five practices that they engage in when they are at their best. So these five practices are challenging the process, that leaders accept challenge and are able to initiate change. A specific challenge may come in a number of ways, from introducing a new product line to implementing a new program or turning a struggling organization around. Uh, one of the other five best practices or five practices of, of excellent leadership is inspiring a shared vision. That vision is one way to be able to unite people towards a common goal and being able to communicate that vision so that people can uh, commit to it and align themselves with it. Enabling others to act is one of the five characteristics of the, the leadership challenge 
and how they establish their credibility. And that means empowering people, giving them the skills they need and the resources they need to do what they need to do. Modeling the way is another practice that means being a role model, showing people the behaviors that you expect of them and being a good role model and establishing there for your credibility. Don't just talk the talk, but walk the talk as well. And encouraging the heart is another way that leaders establish their credibility. The most successful leaders will encourage others to do their very best and then recognize and celebrate their successes. So that's some ideas from Kuzes and Posner, which is a more contemporary approach to leadership. We can also look at the contemporary approach to leadership of transformational and transactional leadership. Now, transformational and transactional leadership theory precedes what we just looked at at Kuzes and Posner. Burns in the 1970s wrote his book on leadership and came up with this term transformational leadership. So transformational leadership occurs when leaders and followers engage with one another in such a way that they raise one another to higher levels of motivation, achievement, and morality. Whereas Burns contrasted transformational leadership with what he observed to be transactional leadership. Transactional leadership is when two parties come together in a relationship and advances the interests of both, but there's no deep or enduring link between them. And therefore, leadership is seen as a simple transaction. You do what I tell you and you get something for it, and I get something as well. So Burns argued that there are these two types of leadership. So with transactional leadership, it involves an exchange of valued things such as economic, political, or psychological things between the initiators and the respondents. In transformational leadership, uh, people are engaging in a different kind of relationship. The relationship between leaders and followers comes one in which both parties become mobilized, inspired, and uplifted. And in some cases, transformational leadership even involves into moral leadership and leadership that raises the level of moral aspiration and moral conduct of both the leaders and the followers. A narrower approach uh, to transformational leadership was proposed by Bass. So Bass and Avolio and all of their associates uh, operationalized the concept of transformational leadership proposed by Burns and turned it uh, and found a way to try to measure this kind of leadership. So their approach focuses closely on the relationship of leadership, leaders and subordinates in complex organizations with particular application to business organizations. In this view taken by Bass and Bass and Avolio and all of their associates, the transactional leader exchanges rewards for services in order to improve the subordinate's job performance. This has some links with earlier theories such as Fiedler's model or the path goal model, which also fo focused on transactional relationships. The transformational leader rather focuses on how the current needs of the subordinates might be met and concentrates on arousing uh, or altering their needs to align with the goals and objectives of the organization. And so we're gonna look at Bass's operationalization of transformational leadership and it as a contemporary approach. So Bass basically defined four eyes of transformational leadership. Only three are depicted here in our model, but I will give you the fourth eye as well. The, the first eye is inspirational motivation or using charisma and inspiration to influence your followers. This is one way that transformational leadership is meant to overcome resistance to change. The second I is intellectual stimulation. This is a way of stimulating the creativity and innovative ideas of the people in the group, looking for new ideas and empowering people. The third I is called individual consideration. This is meant to be motivating and encouraging people within the organization. 
and you'll see how some of these characteristics overlap with some of the ideas of Kuzas and Posner. So we've got inspirational motivation, intellectual stimulation, individualized consideration, and the final I, which is left out of the slide, is called idealized influence. This also coincides with one of Kuzas and Posner's practices for credibility, and it's related to role modeling. So idealized influence means being a role model for your followers. If we look a little bit more closely at how power is understood in Burns's transformational leadership, we can see that power is exercised when potential people who wield power and act to achieve the goals of their own gather resources that are, enable them to influence others. Leadership is exercised when persons with certain motives and purposes mobilize in competition or conflict with others, institutional, political, psychological, and other resources so as to arouse, engage, and satisfy the motives of the followers. The difference between power and leadership is that power serves the interests of the power wielder, whereas leadership serves both the leader's interests and those of the followers. Some of the characteristics of transformational leadership. One of the most powerful formulations of leadership in the modern era has been uh, identified as this concept that Burns has put forth. By noting that although historically we've been preoccupied with power in organizations and society, there's an important difference between power and leadership, and this is something that Burns pointed out to us. Typically, power is thought of as carrying out one's own will despite resistance by others. But such a conception of power neglects the important fact that power involves a relationship between leaders and followers, and that a central value in that relationship is purpose. What is being sought or what is intended by both the one who is exercising the power and the one who is on the receiving end. So purpose and meaning are important aspects of the transformational leadership approach. We can say that leadership has occurred only when the group has been stimulated to move in a new direction. In aspects of power, it is a separate process. Power is exercised when potential power wielders acting to achieve goals of their own, gather resources and enable them to influence others. It is also exercised to realize the purposes of the power wielders and not those who are being um, influenced. Leadership, on the other hand, is exercised when persons with certain motives and purposes mobilize in competition or conflict with others. So the difference between power and leadership is that power serves the interests of the power wielder and leadership serves the interests of both the leaders and the followers. We can move on to a couple other uh, contemporary approaches to leadership. Authentic leadership and shared leadership. An authentic leader is one who remains true to his or her own values, preferences, hopes, and aspirations, and acts in a way that is consistent with those values and beliefs. The authentic leader is both self-reflective and empathetic, establishing a basis for clear and trusting communication in both directions. The key to authentic leadership is understanding your personal strengths and developing them. But one thing about authentic leadership is that in order for leadership to actually be authentic or a leader to be authentic, they must be perceived as authentic by their followers. Shared leadership, also sometimes referred to as distributed leadership, is a newer approach that emphasizes shared leadership and group-centric leadership. Shared or group-centric leadership may be described as a dynamic interactive influence process among individuals and groups in which the objective is to lead one another to the achievement of group or organizational goals. In shared leadership, there may be at uh, different times, different people who take on that leadership role. For those seeking to assert leadership in situations involving many groups and interests, the traditional skills of organizational management, motivating, delegating, and so on are less applicable. And then a new set of skills are needed in this shared leadership situation, such as negotiating, brokering, and resolving conflict. 
Some further contemporary approaches to leadership are known as collaborative leadership and positive leadership. Obviously, the key to shared or group-centric leadership is the capacity to collaborate with others. Connective leaders are trusting, social, and personal, and they are motivated by maximizing the interaction and collaboration among diverse people to achieve a particular end. Sally Helgeson, for example, in her book, The Web of Inclusion from 2005, showed that since change is the only constant in modern life and modern organization, leaders must insist on change at a manageable rate and provide an environment for adaptive work and empower frontline employees with the capacity to innovate. The goal of the organization is to satisfy the needs of its constituencies. And this can only happen if the constraints them constituents themselves are regarded as participants in the evolution of the organization. Other scholars have focused even more specifically on the relationship between leaders and followers as the key to understanding leadership. In relational leadership, it's not the attributes or behaviors of either leaders or followers that are most important, but what happens between leaders and followers, how the exchange between the two produces relationships and can lead to change. Positive leadership is primarily concerned with facilitating extraordinary performance with affirming human potential and facilitating the best of the human condition. This approach focuses on how leaders can develop virtuousness and positive energy in their organizations. Consistent with the, eye, the, the trend in positive psychology or the positive psychology approach, Positive leadership suggests that we should shift our focus away from weaknesses and problems in the organization and instead focus on strengths and opportunities. The result should be an improvement in both individual and organizational performance and an improvement in personal and interpersonal relationships in the organization. Now this discussion of transformational leadership and other contemporary approaches to leadership leads us to the discussion of ethics in leadership. In transformational leadership theory, Burns argued that leadership involves a relationship between the leaders and followers. Leaders act on their own motives and interests, but must be connected to the motives and interests of the followers. And in order for moral leadership to occur, the values of both the leader and the followers must be represented. So in considering the follower in this relationship, a series of more recent publications have argued that studies of the leader-follower relationship have put too much emphasis on the leader and completely disregarded the role of the follower or have disadvantaged that role to too large of an extent. Leaders and followers, it is said, should engage in a dialogue and not in a monologue, and it should be structured so that fundamentally new ideas and relationships can emerge. This suggests that leaders should above all aid in creating an open and visible process through which members of the group can express their needs and interests. In terms of leadership, morality, and globalization, there are a number of challenges to be addressed. In a global society, there is the additional challenge of confronting the different moral perspectives that exist within various cultures. But there's also a lot of questions to be raised about the universality of ethics. So in a fractured and diverse society, moral standards of any group or culture reflect its own circumstances and cannot necessarily be generalized to others. For moral leadership, there are some ethical issues at hand. Moral leadership is not based on a set of principles or rules that a leader can choose to follow or ignore. As much as we have tried over several hundred years to construct rules and codes of conduct, the ethical choices we face are always too difficult for those codes to readily fit. Rather, most fail to see that moral issues are inherent in a situation but lie just beneath the surface. Many leaders uncritically accept an organization's culture and fail to recognize the ethical traps that this can hold. 
They may neglect the low probability events and miscalculate the risks and fail to consider all of the parties that might be involved and downplay the long-term consequences. So for moral management, moral imagination not only just heightens the attention of moral concerns, but rather carefully and thoughtfully understanding and evaluating various options for a moral point of view. Acting with moral imagination requires expanding our capacity for moral reasoning and charting new directions for moral action. So finally, we'll just take a quick look at the idea of creative leadership and its impact on the organization. Creative leaders require a sense of purpose or even passion. The capacity for such creativity comes from inside, and it seems based on a set of qualities, some rational, some intuitive, and some defying description. So this passion and purpose drives creative leaders in a singular direction. Creative leaders display learning agility, the capacity to learn from their experiences, to engage in self-reflection and to self-critique, and to apply your learning and personal competencies to future problems. Creative leadership is aided by courage. As we have seen before, courage is a prerequisite to creativity and a prerequisite to innovation, as well as a prerequisite to forward-thinking action, which is a general aspect of leadership. Fourth, creative leadership is also associated with love and compassion, factors rarely found in the traditional literature on leadership, but two that have been demonstrated to have significant influence on organizational productivity, as well as being simply the right thing to do ethically. Finally, a related idea is your capacity for empathy, identifying or vicariously experiencing the feel feelings of others. So that is also linked to the ethical aspect of leadership and here to creative leadership. And so to conclude, we can have seen that organizations have programmed and non-programmed decisions that can be low or high risk with certainty or uncertainty, and that can be handled at either lower levels of the organization or higher levels. Decision outcomes can fail for a number of reasons, including faulty decision-making practices, premature commitments, or the misallocation of resources, or through the process of groupthink. In order for us to act ethically in our decision-making, we need certain skills with which to approach our decisions. Different models of decision-making can be used to make decisions depending on the goals, the information available, and the characteristics of the decision. In terms of leadership, we can say that leadership has occurred only when the individual group has been stimulated to move in a new direction. There is no ultimate approach, model, or theory to leadership. There are many, many different theories and models and approaches to leadership, and appropriate leadership will be based on a number of factors. So finally, identifying and resolving moral issues in leadership requires moral imagination and a good sense of ethical awareness to promote moral processes in the organization. So that's it for our unit on decision-making and leadership, unit number seven in our module, People in Business.